Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to my guest for two reasons. First, she's a woman who I greatly admire, and I'm excited for you to know her. Second, I just spoke with her about a week ago, so we were able to talk about how quarantining alone, and therefore without any physical touch, is affecting her. I've mentioned before that I have interviews already recorded to get us through at least October, But I realized that talking about physical touch and skin hunger during quarantine was so important that I needed to bump this episode up and release it immediately. So Kathy is a 52-year-old cisgender female who describes herself as white, pansexual, polyamorous, and single with playmates. She describes her body shape as round. Kathy is the founder of The Intimacy Dojo, which you can find at theintimacydojo.com. As a child, Kathy experienced extended molestation, which caused her to dissociate from her body and feel huge shame about even having a body. As she grew older, she also gained a lot of weight, which left her feeling like no one would ever want her. In this interview, we talk about those early experiences, plus the healing she has done, and why she now feels passionate about helping others know that they are lovable and acceptable just as they are. Throughout this interview, you'll also hear Kathy mention the name Reed Mahalko. He is a popular sex educator someone who she and I have both worked with, and I'll put his information in the show notes. I'm so pleased to introduce Kathy. I am absolutely thrilled to be talking with you today. You are one of my favorite people. (laughs) Before we started recording, I was saying to you that I would walk over hot coals to work with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I love what you're doing here. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So let's just jump right in. Um, Sure. The first question I ask everyone is what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Um, my first memory was very confused because I was having pleasure, but it was during abuse. Mm. And so I was abused as a child and for a number of years. I was so confused about what, what my body was doing and I was too young. There wasn't really, we didn't have sex ed and I felt ashamed and I wasn't really sure why my body was responding the way it did and why it felt good. 
I think it was a long, it took a long time for me to decouple that. Yeah. Because even when I masturbate, I had associated sexuality with, with abuse or power struggles or not having control over my body. So even masturbation, when it was pleasurable, the fantasies in my head were not very pleasurable. Mm. Like that's how I was kind of, my, my system was confused about how to have that pleasure around sexuality. Yeah. Uh, so how old were you when you started having those pleasurable feelings? I think I, I imagine I was about five, yeah. like as close as I can tell. Sure. I was five. I just remember I was like one time I was sitting on the couch and just the arm of the couch with my legs on either side. And like, I remember that as a five-year-old, mm. but I also remember being touched and being very confused about my body's responses and wondering why it was flopping the way it did. Oh, I'm so sorry. How long did that abuse go on? Um, until I was about 11. It's a so, long time. Yeah. And did your bodily experience of it change over those years? Um, it did. Like, I think that it became something, I think humans are amazingly adaptable. We, We've learned to stay in quarantine right now. Like right now when we're, we're interviewing, we're all at stay at home, shelter in place or whatever your state is calling it. And humans do adapt. Like we learn to, to make do with what's happening to us in amazing ways. And it just got so I kind of expected it. And I was able to take a little more pleasure out of it. And still, it still felt awful in a lot of ways. It wasn't anything like, I don't think. I'm not advocating anybody think, oh, people will just get used to it. Yeah. It was it was very traumatizing and very harmful for me. And I think that there was a certain regularity and comfort to it in a way. Like I was like something, my family life was a little chaotic. And so having some of that ability to um, have a connection because mm. our family didn't, didn't hug, didn't, wasn't very touchy feely. So, and I'm someone who's very, touch is one of my big love languages. So if, you know, I was a little starved for that. Yeah. So it was, again, very confusing. And I, I wasn't sure how to get my needs met in a healthy way for many years. So I want to just pause here for a second, because um, as you know, this is uh, not uncommon for children mm-hmm. who are in abuse situations to have pleasurable responses or pleasure responses, because your body has autonomic responses, and mm-hmm. you don't like, that doesn't mean that you somehow asked for it, or that you perpetuated it in any way. Yeah, it doesn't make it okay or wanted. No. But I remember reading the book, The Courage to Heal, which was one of the only books that was out at the time I first started healing from abuse. And they were talking about how if you, if a doctor hits you on the knee in the in the yeah. spot that makes your, your foot kick, like, it's the same thing. Like you can literally not control that your body is going to respond. And that doesn't mean you wanted it or asked for it or deserved it in any way. Yeah. I'm so glad this is coming up because I do talk to women who have such confusion, even 30, 40 years later about like, why, what was wrong with me that I found that pleasurable? I think it's Mm -hmm. so important. Um, Something else, something you said when you first started talking was that you could have sexual pleasure, but the fantasies were not pleasurable. I'm I'm really curious to know more about that. I think because my only view of sexuality at all was we had a, a farm, a dairy farm. So I would see the, the, the animals not necessarily treated very respectfully. 
um, in terms of reproductive choices and, and things like that. Like I remember early on seeing they were trying to mate a mare with a stallion and the mare was not ready and they, they cobbled her and they didn't let her, you know, have a choice about it. And then I was experiencing similar things with my, my own, like not having choices, being held down, sometimes being in pain mixed in with that pleasure and the connection with someone I cared about. So it was very confusing to me. And I think my fantasies just grew out of that. Like I, I, I do know that there's a lot of people that are into BDSM and like more violent fantasies. It took me probably 40 years to figure out how do I separate what was naturally like what feels authentic to me versus what was nurtured in me or quote unquote mm. nurtured Interesting. like what my experiences created for me because I had so like the only time I felt sexual pleasure was when it was out of my control and there was violence and uh, sometimes. And so it was very, I love how Reed Mahako talks about sensual versus erotic. And that was really big for me. Like what is sensual is what we actually feel in our body and enjoy versus what's erotic is what is in our heads, our fantasies. And so separating that for me, it was really big because I was like, well, maybe I somehow wanted the abuse or attracted the abuse because I had these fantasies and being able to separate that. Oh, I do like it when my partner sometimes will tell me I'm going to hold, hold you down and do whatever I want to you. But if they actually did it to me, I'd be very, very mad. Yes. Yeah. This is something I talk about a lot that your fantasies don't can are often it's okay for them to stay fantasies. They don't have to be brought into reality. And sometimes talking about them is like super erotic. But if we actually took the next step into doing them, that would it wouldn't be good for us. Yeah. Some fantasies I really enjoyed doing and some I haven't. So I think that around sexuality so much is let's well let's try a baby step in that direction does it feel good or not like if we can find partners that are willing to experiment with us and say like not not judgment not and willing i one of the things that i've seen is a lot of people are not willing to stop if they're going down a path that's a turn on for them and to find partners that are willing to to that have enough wherewithal to say oh this is turning me on but you want to stop and it's totally okay yeah yeah it's yeah, finding that's a gift. Yes. So you said the abuse stopped around age 11. How did it stop? Um, to the best of my, like, again, it's a very confused, like the, the memories are very confused about it. But I think that I started developing, like I was starting to get boobs and hair down there and stuff. And I think that that was just not a turn on for that person. Oh, interesting. So they really wanted the child's body. As far as I could tell, yeah. How did that affect your relationship with your body? I felt a lot of shame. Um, I associated it with being bigger. Like I was, I was not a tight, like I was quite slender. And then when I started developing boobs and you know, getting a little more, like people, girls naturally put on a little more weight around their hips and their, and their breasts. I was still in like really at that point, I was really great shape. I worked out on a farm all the time. You know, we were working all the time. Um, but I associated with uh, shame, like my body wasn't desirable, like someone wasn't even forcing me anymore. I'm like, oh, so I guess nobody wants, yeah. there was so much shame in general about my body. Like it all was very confused. 
So that's so interesting that the abuse stops, which is a positive thing, except that it can be associated as a negative thing because, oh, I'm not desirable anymore. Yeah, it felt like because I was also getting some touch needs met and I was so ashamed of my body and I felt like I wasn't desirable. I felt like I would felt shame my entire life around my body, I think, and just I didn't understand it. It felt like this really dangerous place to be. I lived in my head or above my head all the time. I was so dissociated. And I do remember in seventh grade, the chorus teacher's daughter was in my class and she brought in this um, one of those really torrid romance books that she'd found in her mom's room. And we went like behind the bleachers and we were reading it to each other. But it that was, you know, that was really interesting because that's so related to what there was a lot of rape and force and like over, like overcoming her resistance. And she, then she liked it. And so my poor brain was trying to figure out what was normal. And I'm hearing this thinking, oh, that must, I guess that's why, you know, that's really what sex is about. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't that different from what I'd experienced and, you know, the, the power overpowering, not, not listening to, to people saying no. Mm-hmm. But I do remember that I was masturbating pretty frequently. Um, and that's, I mean, that's not uncommon for people that are sexualized early. There's a lot of, um, of sexual curiosity, I think. Yeah. And so I love that I, I could feel that pleasure, but I also felt very, very guilty about it. I felt like uh, I'm doing something wrong. I shouldn't want this pleasure. I should, um, if I was a good person, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing these things. Yeah. When you masturbated Mm -hmm. and you came presumably to something that you would call an orgasm, was it a pleasurable orgasm? And the reason I ask is because for me, also, my abuse story is different than yours, but also having a lot of confusion and shame around all of that. I was so stuck in my head that even though my body quaked and like the things happened, I didn't have a sense of release. Like I mostly had a sense of guilt and I called them sort of like my genital sneezes. Like it didn't oh. feel like <laughs> anything in particular. And I'm curious what your experience of that was. Um, well, I was really quiet. I'd just been, I've been, all my sexual experiences were where I was supposed to be quiet anyway. So I didn't make any noise. I've been trained out of that. And I think most humans are because there's a lot of shame around masturbation. And they don't, mom and dad don't say, okay, honey, when you go to masturbate and it's a private thing, <laughs> close the door. But, you know, please, you know, feel free to make as much noise as you want as long as we know you're okay. That's not what happens. <laughs> People are sneaking off and feeling guilty about it. Yeah. Um, so I was really quiet and I would, I did have a sense of release, like it would feel pleasurable, but there was an immense guilt about it. So I would feel that, that, that pleasure. And it was nothing like I've had orgasms now with, with playmates that I've, that are, that know what they do, they, they're doing. And I've released a lot of shame so I can enjoy that a lot more. Like now I have much more intense orgasms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there was a sense of release, but there would also be this deep shame. And it was like, I think because I felt shame, I took that as proof that I was a bad person. Mm. Those bad feelings of shame that, oh, look, I've done something bad. Yeah. So at what point did you start engaging with engaging in your sexuality with another person? Um, I was I I lived in mainland China for a year as an exchange student um, as my as a sophomore year in college. And that was the really the first time I had a boyfriend. 
So one of the other exchange students and I started, started dating. Uh, it was interesting. And I felt, finally felt, oh, I have a boyfriend. I'm okay. This is proof that, you know, that I'm not undesirable that someone can want me. And you said that you had built up this idea from your own experience and then the book with your, with your girlfriend under the bleachers that sex was probably mostly about him pushing and you saying no until he took what he wanted. And then you found pleasure. Did that um, dynamic show up in that relationship at all? Um, not so much, actually. It was more the other way around. So we're still good friends to this day. Um, and he's, he's really, he's gay. Like he's, he's very gay, not just a little bit gay. Um, but he didn't want to be gay. He was Catholic. He's still Catholic as far as I know. Um, and so it was kind of like there was an, we were really good friends. And I think that there was a, a, a very deep mutual liking and I wanted to be sexual because that would be proof that I was desirable. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of overpower me to prove that I was desirable, but he didn't. So there was that, you know, like I felt very like, oh, cool. I have a boyfriend finally. Like, look, I have a, like, it made me feel like I had status and value. Um, and there was that lacking of like, he wasn't overpowering me or pushing me for sex. Though we were very, like both of us were very curious and we tried a lot of things that Neither of us, like, we were like, I wonder if we, if we enjoy this. And that was really fun to get to explore different things. I'm grinning because um, my first boyfriend was when I was a senior in high school. We only dated for like three months. But um, I remember, and I don't think he even ever touched my boob. Like, I think all we did was kiss. But I remember... I was a very practical kind of responsible teenage girl. And so I was like, <laughs> we should have a conversation about sex. And so we had a conversation about whether we were going to have sex. And his response was, um, well, you're the one who has the most to lose. So I think you should choose. And I was like, wow, that does not make me feel desired at all. And then it turned out that he was gay. <laughs> Like, oh, that's why. <laughs> so once that relationship ended, what happened next for you in terms of your sex and sexuality? Um, well, it was really interesting because I lived with him for a while, partly we had a lease, but also I was very, I was an incredibly shy person and I was dealing with the abuse. It was really coming up a lot. So it I needed a roommate that would be there for me. So I lived with him and his boyfriend for a year and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. After the two of you were done. After we broke up. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and it was actually, it worked like, it was very painful at the time, but like it was supportive too. Like we cared about each other. Sure. Um, so that was interesting. But then I went with him a couple times to a gay bar, the, the gay bar in Ithaca that he went to. Um, because I was curious. I'm like, well, if this is my friend and this is, you know, he's doing it, I want to just see what this place is. And I really loved it because I could go there and not feel, I felt really comfortable there. And so I started hanging out there more and more. And one night I got super drunk and I, he introduced me to some friends, uh, some lesbian friends from work. I spent three hours telling them how straight I was and about a half an hour making a pass at one of them. <laughs> Yeah. 
Um, and I really loved kissing her, like kissing her. We fooled around a little bit and we kissed and I was just like, this is the best thing ever. Like I didn't feel afraid because the, there wasn't that power dynamic that I'd experienced with men. So I was convinced I was a lesbian. If you like kissing a woman, you must be a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, that was yeah. my story. So uh, mine too for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so I went through the whole coming out, being a lesbian, trying to be yep. a good lesbian for several yep. years. <laughs> Um, yeah. So in Ithaca was pretty militantly, the lesbian community there was very much like, if you, you like women or you're the patriarchy has kind of won at that, at that time, I'm sure it's changed a lot since then. But, um, after a while I was like, I think I still like men too. And they're like, nope. And I really felt like I get kicked out of that community. I got kind of excommunicated because I was like, I think I, I, I don't think I just like women. Yeah, I remember being at, um, I went through the same, <laughs> same period. Um, <laughs> and I was at a party with a group of lesbians. And there was all this talk about how they were all cat lovers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a cliche, but they were. <laughs> and, um, and that cats, no female cat wanted to have sex that every conception was always a rape. And I was like, that just doesn't feel true. (laughs) On like an evolutionary biological standpoint, that does not feel true to me. And I don't feel like this is my community. (laughs) But it was the same thing. Like you were either all in or you were out. And that was never comfortable for me either. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad because I felt like I'd broken through one box to, to get to a place where, oh, I can enjoy women's bodies a lot. Yeah. But there was another box there. Like I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I was still, con- still trying to con- contain or control my sexuality at that point. At this point in the conversation, Kathy and I talked extensively about that first relationship, including the fact that he was having unprotected sex with other men at the height of the AIDS crisis and not telling her and the boundaries she wasn't able to establish then that she would now. It's a wonderful conversation and I want you to hear it. I also know that this is a hard time financially for a lot of people. So I'm putting this and other extras from this week's episode over at Patreon free for everyone regardless of whether you're a subscriber. If you have a few extra dollars to pledge, of course, I'm always grateful for the support. But if you don't, I absolutely understand. I've seen a number of patrons drop off because their financial resources are stressed right now. And I honor you in taking care of yourselves. And remember, a great way to support the podcast is always to tell a friend about it. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment 
and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. So let's uh, jump back into the timeline where we were, which was you in grad school, your, um, your macking on ladies at the gay bar. (laughs) (laughs) After telling them I was straight. (laughs) (laughs) So after you sort of your uh, bisexuality or pansexuality, if you were ready to call it that, um, has reemerged. What's what's sort of the next thing that happens in your story? Um, I think I was still it was bisexual. I didn't even understand pansexual mm. at that point. Like yeah. I was just like, oh, I think I like men and women. Thinking that gender was binary in the way that yeah. I was brought, you know, conditioned. Um, I was in grad school and I had a horrible crush on one of the other women in the in the department. And she was um, dating a guy, so of course I felt like, oh, she's straight. I should just leave her alone. We got to be friends. We'd do studying together. And one night we were hanging out and um, at my house, <laughs> Ed invited her over because I was like, I need to start making more friends. This is just as friends. I invited her over. And we had dinner and we were just hanging out I was showing her my the rest of the place and I had a water bed and she'd never seen one so she was like kind of bouncing on it and I had a teddy bear nearby and she, she was like making the teddy bear talk like she was holding its little arms and making it talk and she bopped me on the nose like she was totally flirting with me, but I <laughs> did not get it at all. I'm like, no, she's straight. She's, oh, isn't it cool that my new friend is playful with me? <laughs> We're totally missing all of it. Yeah. Um, and we were ended up wrestling with the bear and kissing. And then we ended up making love. And it was beautiful and she had a boyfriend and I was I was like here I am corrupting innocent people and oh, years no. later we're still friends too I talked to her and she's like 
No, I was totally flirting with you. But I, in my head, I had totally corrupted this innocent person. You know. Well, you know, that doesn't surprise me, given your background, thinking that there's something wrong with you and that, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff. Yeah, to, that's just the next step in that in that logical scenario is I'm the one who's corrupting people and making them bad like me. Yes. Well, and I still had a lot of innate homophobia too. Like it just been so deep, even though I'd had a number of, of, I fooled around with a number of women I'd hung out in the lesbian community. I hadn't, it hadn't gotten rid of, it took decades for me to get rid of most of my homophobia um, so I felt like I'd corrupted her or led her down a path that was not good. <laughs> um, but we, we ended up having kind of an affair for a while and then she broke it off cause she felt really guilty cause her boyfriend, um, but we were friends and then we kind of slip every once in a while and have sex. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Um, and it was, it was so fun. Like I really enjoyed it. I felt, I felt so, I felt really good about myself when we were sexual together Mm. because she was someone I thought was really attractive and really funny and really smart and just really enjoyed her. And I also felt guilty because we were doing something that we weren't supposed to, like I should have been, I felt like I should have been supporting her and saying, no, we were not going to do this. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, but eventually she, she broke up with her boyfriend and we dated for a couple of years. What is your relationship with your body through this time? I still had so much shame. I was still doing therapy. Um, but I was ashamed of being bigger. I thought that I should be a size, you know, six or whatever and very fit. Um, and I wasn't. I felt ashamed of my desire. If I felt attracted to someone, I felt like I was shaming them or harming them in some way. So I would try to hide it, which made it harder for people to figure out if I wanted to date them or not. Yes. So I was interested. Oh my God, that resonates so hard for me. Yeah. Like either if I, I never let anybody know I was interested in them because either I was going to make a fool of them or I was going to be made a fool of if I expressed any interest. Yeah, the mocking. I was really afraid of people mock. Like, you you think I would date you? Kind of that was that fear. Or that I was shaming them by liking them. Yeah. So um, at what point did you have more sexual connections happening again? I ended up dating two different women. Um, They both knew that I was dating them, but... Um, one was very sane and together and had her own house and a good income and I really enjoyed her. And the other was a drug user, alcoholic, no job. Um, and of course I dumped the sane one for the 
the crazy one, mm-hmm. <laughs> the one that was having lots of lots of issues. So um, I had a lot of sex with the two of them, and I really like it was really fun, and it was really nice to have two different women wanting me. Like it was really messy with the, the part of my brain that had decided that I wasn't desirable. I want to pause for a second on the statement you just made. Again, resonates so hard for me. It messed with the part of my brain that believed that I was undesirable. Can you talk about what that, like, what that experience was for you? Yeah, because I, well, I really just, I was so used to not being wanted. And again, just like you said before, like, I was hiding that I liked anyone. So it was, even if people were attracted to me, I was giving none of the signals out. So it was really like, it took a very, very confident person or a very, very drunk person to actually make a move on me. So I'd really kind of reinforced, it was self-reinforcing. Because I wasn't giving off any signals that I was interested. No one was making moves on me or, at, you know, trying to flirt with me. So that just reinforced that I wasn't desirable. And here I, uh, all of a sudden, I'm dating two different women that in my, my, my imagination was they're both very high stat. Like I, I saw them both as high status or high value, popular in the community. And it just, my, my brain just didn't know how to deal with that. Like it was very confusing. And I, I just remember going home one night I'd had, I had a date with one and then I had gone from that to a date with the other. And we'd had sex on both of them. And, um, I went back to my apartment afterwards and I was the room I was renting there. And I was just like, laying on the bed just staring at the ceiling like I don't understand this what just happened (laughs) yeah it was very confusing it didn't fit my paradigm of myself and that was really good in some ways to start shaking that yes I so my uh my experience was I was in the midst of my uh, sexual awakening. So I, I had started to figure out that maybe my view of myself was skewed, that, that nobody wanted me was maybe not entirely true, but still not like, it still had not penetrated. <laughs> that is a very strange word to use in this situation. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was at a party one night. It was a small party. There were maybe 10 people. I knew all of them except two people. And when I walked in, I was like, oh, they're the beautiful people. Mm. Like, they're the ones who everybody wants to know, everybody wants to sit next to, everybody wants their attention. I was like, I don't know either of them. Um, And they clearly have no reason to pay attention to me. And um, so I'm just not even going to try. And then during the course of the evening, 
both of them made a point of coming over and kissing me. <laughs> and I was like, I, do, I don't understand this. And then the, one of them was a man and one of them was a woman. And they they were sort of connected. And she said to me, um, before things really got started, we were out on the porch arguing about which of us was going to get to go home with you oh, tonight. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> that makes no sense to me. <laughs> and I literally, like, th- I had a lot of fun that night. But the next day, I had a complete meltdown. Because I was like, this makes absolutely no sense to me i have no place in my head to put this yeah it took it took weeks and weeks for me to sort of like come to some place where my energetic system could maybe begin to potentially (laughs) (laughs) deal with that Yeah. yeah, it kind of felt like my com- the computer part of my brain was like, does not compute. Yeah, or- right. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just going to melt down into a, like <laughs> a core of metal. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I've heard you talk about very eloquently is that um, you you really believed that you could not be desirable or lovable. Mm -hmm. Um, And that a lot of that had to do with your body. Um, And that you went through some really profound healing and came out the other side as somebody who is advocating for pleasure for all people mm-hmm. and I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that experience one of the things that I talk about a lot is that there no matter what your body size is no matter what your body shape is there is somebody who wants to love you yeah And I also know that six years ago, I would not have been able to hear that Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed it because I would have said, well, that's nice for somebody else to say, but they don't, they don't know me. They don't know my body. They don't know how undesirable I am. Um, And so I think it's really important for people to hear from someone who not only has been there and lives in the body that you live in, that you are now actually an extremely desired person. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, it's, I, one thing I want to do, I do want to say is it's a process and a journey. And there's still days where I'm like, no one could possibly want me in this body. Sure. Um, and there's other days where I have playmates and I'm just like, oh, this is so much fun. My body really 
they're enjoying my body. I'm enjoying my body. What's wrong with this? Like, there's just, I think that we're so acculturated to looking for slender people to have sex with. And we're looking for status rather than pleasure. Mm. And so for me, it's a journey and there's days where I get it really well and there's days when I'm tired or feeling overwhelmed and I just, I suck at it. So I, I do want to normalize that because I think Thank you. there's a sense that, oh, we'll get this and then we'll be done versus, oh, there's good days and ba- bad days and hopefully my turnaround time is faster as I go, as I keep doing this, I catch yes. myself. Um, but it really was a journey. I went to Al-Anon for a long time. So that was a really big healing for me to, because you deal with shame so much in Al-Anon and secrets that you've kept. So that was a, a really big step. But it was years later that I found, um, I started doing EFT because I was in a really bad place bad place and the therapist I was seeing had fired me at the end of a session and he's he's just like this isn't working and I was on a bunch of antidepressants and I just I felt like I should die but I didn't deserve to die like all the abuse Mm. stuff was open um and as he kicked me out of the office, he said, you might want to try EFT or he didn't say EFT. He said energy psychology. Maybe that could help you. And I dove in because it really made a difference for me. Hmm. Um, and that was because it's, it's something that connects you with your body and you have to accept where you are and your beliefs where you are for that. Um, that was a, big step in my journey to like oh this body has held so much pain for me um so that was like I started loving my body more because it was like I had to look at the fact that I had been through all this pain and my body had processed it for me my body had held it for me um and it was doing its best for me and that was a really big step forward but it was a journey like of five years of just working on that really the abuse I went through was pretty intense so not everybody would have to take so long um and then just rediscovering pleasure as uh without the shame was really I don't know how to describe it if it was it was so uncomfortable to enjoy my body without pain because I had no neural pathways for it. I had, it was, I, I, the closest analogy I have is of uh, four years ago, I was, I almost died. I was in a, I had double pneumonia and I was in uh, ICU for 21 days. And when I came out, I couldn't lift a two pound weight. Before that I'd been doing 50 pound kettlebells regularly. And that two pound weight just felt, it was, that, that sense of I can't do this was so strong and that kind of achy, horrible feeling of like trying to do something you don't know how to do. And then my trainer would actually have to lift, help me lift the two pound weight. And that fighting through that sense of I should just give up. This is too hard. This, I don't know how to do this. 
But the more I tried, you know, two weeks later, I'm doing five pound weights. And then, you know, a month later, I'm doing, you know, 20 pound and then gradually back to the 50 pound. But that sense of, I really don't know how to do this. I don't know if I have the capacity to do this. I don't know if I have the muscles or the ability to do it. And just trying anyway was so, it was really, really hard for me. And I just, like, if anyone's listening to this, the courage it takes to go through that, I just want to offer them, like, there is another side. And if we just keep trying, then there is another, like, we can get there. But... And again, I have good days and bad days, but I started talking about it because I I get so frustrated that our, our media and our, our society, really they showcase people that are skinny all the time. And there's so much status and value and sexuality placed on people that are skinny. And then also a lot of them are also feeling put in a box and, con- and constrained and they're kind of taught they have to behave a certain way to be okay. Um, so I started doing talks at some conventions just to kind of normalize it because I, I want to help break the stereotype. I think if nobody speaks up, it just reinforces that only pretty people deserve sex and that anyone else shouldn't have sex and there's something wrong with them if they have sex or it's laughable as opposed to like bodies have nerve endings if it feels good for you to to enjoy it what does it matter what your size is if both people are consensual what does it matter yes And there are people who want to love us and touch us and have sex with us, no matter what. There are people. Yeah, when I started dating again, um, my best friend was got tired of hearing me not complain about not dating. He sent me an article that Reed Mahako had written, um, and Reed got me dating in two weeks, and he said. Just put at the top of your dating profile that I'm a big person, a big woman. If you don't like dating big women, please don't bother messaging. And I said, I don't want to do this. No one will date me. And I figured everyone was going to just pass me over. And he said, well, but you're kind of scared of dating anyway. So if everyone runs away, then you don't have to date them. And I was like, oh, I can't refute this logic. <laughs> So I put it at the top of my dating profile and I got so many responses of people saying, I love how confident you are about your body. I love how upfront you are. And I had more dates. I, I've never, it has, I've never lacked dates now that I've put that at the top. Like if I want to go on dates, I can have, I can just start talking to people and people that I would consider like, you know, educated, thoughtful, nice people, like I've had really good times. So that was a big, a big awakening for me. I think it's shame that people are, find off-putting. And I think so many of us are shamed of our bodies, whether it's two pounds of 
or two ounces of cellulite or 200 pounds of weight, whatever it is, it's like we have so much shame and that is not attractive. I don't, I don't know many people that are attracted to shame, but the fact that we're bigger, some people don't care at all. They're like, I just want a cool person. Yeah. It reminds me very much of um, early on in the podcast, I, I interviewed a trans man named Tristan. And he said that um, people's responses to him when he was dating were very dependent on how he rolled out the information. Yes. And when he rolled out the information as I've got a different body and you get to play with it. <laughs> you would get really positive responses. I love like, it. Like, look how much fun you're going to have instead of like, yeah, I got, like, I'm different. And I, I don't know if you're going to be cool with that. And yeah, it totally makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, you now, like, what is your dating slash relationship landscape like now pre-quarantine? <laughs> Where you were you as that. of January 1st? <laughs> um, I had kind of taken a break from dating because I was... I was finding there were some things I wanted to work through personally. And I just, I had a lot of life transitions this last year. So last summer I changed jobs and I was changing a lot, a lot of changes. And I just felt like I kind of wanted to take a break from it and just be with me. And I think that I don't know that our society really gets that either it's like oh you must be failing if you're not dating or really you can't get dates I have people asking me out on dates and I'm just kind of like I think right now I want to just be solo and figure some stuff out for me and I think this is kind of a helix we we clear stuff and then we see it again from a different perspective yeah. and so I'm just I was just honoring my my need to, I have a lot of great community. I have a lot of great friends and I have some playmates and I'm not really feeling like I want to have a relationship relationship right now while I'm figuring out some things that like, I'm not sure what direction I really want to go in my life right now. So I want to figure that out before I start trying to amend other people into that life. Yeah. And so we are talking now during the time of stay at home. Mm -hmm. um, and so how are you, uh, how are you getting your touch needs met? Or how are you handling not having your touch needs met? It's a, I love that you're asking that question. I think it's, it's challenging. I'm a research scientist, so I did a lot of research on what people do. Um, and one, I'm trying to be much more mindful and it's something I've tried to do for the healing process too, is uh, over the years is be mindful when I touch myself. So if I'm showering even or brushing my hair, 
I used to like trying to run the brush through really quickly. I'd be mad at myself that there were snarls and it was proof that I was a bad person. And I kind of ripped the brush through and pull my hair and try to be done as fast as I could. And one of the things I try to do now is be slower and mindful and like just let myself enjoy my hair being brushed by myself or my body being washed by myself. I have a cat, so I'm getting a lot of like, I pet her. She she was getting a little annoyed now. I think she's spoiled and it's going to be hard for her when I'm not here <laughs> to, to pet her constantly. Um, and just doing things in the sunshine. I, I have a private backyard, so I've been going, I have a hot tub. I've been going out naked, just feeling the sun on my body or the, the breeze on my body. And when I masturbate, I try to be mindful about it. There's still times when I'll pull out the Itachi and just kind of, for for release, just get her done. Yeah. But I'm trying to be more mindful and thoughtful about that. And now it's time for the lowdown. The things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you have sex during your period? Yes, actually, I tend to get incredibly horny the night before. And, oh, yeah? Um, I've Luckily, I, the playmates I've had lately have... So, like for me, if they don't enjoy it, it's not going to be fun. But if they if they don't care, or some of them just find it kind of different and a different sensation, so um, yeah, put down a towel or put old sheets on and have a grand old time. Awesome. <laughs> have you ever faked an orgasm? Absolutely. My first relationships often because I felt like they were taking too much time with me, or I was too much mm. trouble. Yes. I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. What is your favorite way to orgasm during sex? Um, favorite. I I mean, orgasms feel great. Um, <laughs> I, well, one of the things I really like is because I think because I orgasm so well right now, it, I like it when someone tells me I can't and then I try to hold it off. And then eventually they tell me I can. And that's that's really hot for me. What kind of touch do you enjoy most? I tend to like when I'm getting start getting turned on, I like gentle touch and soft, like kind of the fingertips, kind of light touch. I'm not into pain at all, but when I get more excited, I tend to want more vigorous touch. What are your hard red lines? Uh, not into pain. Um, yeah, and and I guess if I ever feel like the person is out of control, that's something that would really that would terrify me like I need my playmates are all pretty savvy and I know they respect no's or even like if I if I hesitate in answering they take that as a no so Mm. I feel really blessed about that yeah yeah for me it is you absolutely must be like in the room with me uh, energetically so I I'm a hard no to any alcohol Mm. or substances before coming in the bedroom, not because I have a particular moral issue with it, but because I need to know that you're 100% present with me. Yeah. What do you consider the kinkiest thing that you enjoy? Oh, um, I love role playing. Like, 
story, like making up stories and fantasies and kind of like pretending or pretending to be different people. Um, that's, you know, it's kind of, it's like playing, like kids playing in a way, like having stories and making up this, this fantasy and getting to, um, improv off each other, like setting certain criteria and then improving to see what each of us will come up with to, around that story. Nice. Do you have particular stories or, or scenarios that you enjoy most? Um, I think because I never really got a chance to have that innocent sexual exp- exploration. One of my favorite is like, we're in high school and we're, we're supposed to be studying and the parents are like downstairs. So we've got to be kind of quiet, but like we get to yeah. fool around and explore each other. That's like, that's a really fun one for me. What is your favorite part of your body? Ah, <sighs> that's a tough one. Um, I, and it's interesting because it used to be tough because there was no part of my body I liked. Um, and now it just kind of like most days it's pretty awesome. Like I have so many cool nerve endings that like to do fun things. So I really like my boobs. I like my eyes. Like I like the fact that my lips and hands can bring pleasure. So yeah. What's your least favorite part of your body? Um, I think that there's still some like my belly and thighs because I have stretch marks and they're bigger than than um they quote unquote should be. I think there's days when that really still rears its ugly head, the, the old beliefs. Well, that is it. We've done it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much. Um, where can people find you? If they'd like to go to the intimacydojo.com, there are over a thousand videos. I've done interviews with different people and I want to get one with you. We have a couple that I've got to get up there too. Um, with you, with you, Leah. Um, I just, what I did, my idea was just to interview people and ask the questions I wanted to know and put it up for anyone. Cause I know when I was first looking at this, I didn't know where to go. And so many people made it scary or, um, I don't know, frightening to look at. So I just wanted to normalize just having conversations about the things that people wondered about their bodies and relationships. So that's the best way to find me. And that's why I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I so appreciate how you interview Leah. This is gentle. It's very vulnerable talking about a lot of these things. And I love how you model and you share your own experiences back and just really, really... I'm touched by you offering this to the world. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. 
Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. Hold up. 